0: Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB, the CV. Copyright 2024. Proximo. Jersey City, New Jersey. Please drink responsibly.
1: we presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting
2: partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code Dan for a special offer when you sign up. That's code Dan, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Always enjoy talking to this guy. Always enjoy that he has takes that he's not afraid to give, no matter how it is that they land. A lot to cover with him. A lot of ground that I want to cover. So let's start, Buzz, and I admire your work, obviously, have for a long time. Your writing in uh, ver- about various different subject matters. So let's start here. As a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, what do you make of the state of journalism right now?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I think there are, there are exceptions to the sorry state. I mean, I think the New York Times has done an amazing job of, uh, you know, adjusting to the modern age. I think their online site is is amazing. Uh, it's innovative. Um, and by all accounts, they're doing well. The Post is doing OK. The Wall Street Journal. But then, you know, that's about it. Every newspaper is flagging. Newspapers are laying off. Some are going to three days a week. And I think it's only a matter of time here in Philadelphia when the They'll go to three days a week. And it's scary. Now, I know we've been saying this for a long time, but I don't see it getting any better. The stories are shorter and shorter and shorter and more superficial and more superficial you know, than ever.
2: You won the Pulitzer Prize for investigative work on corruption in the Philadelphia court system that has only gotten more. I mean, what has happened with corruption and the weakening of newspapers, Buzz, I'm not even sure that this can happen today. You can win a Pulitzer Prize, but reporting on corruption is so run of the mill these days and journalism is so weakened that I'm not sure that you would be allowed to exist in a meaningful fashion today.
1: I don't I don't think so. I mean, Dan, that story with two reporters took two and a half years, I mean, two and a half years, solid two reporters, two and a half years. That that would that would never happen today. I think the Philadelphia Inquirer when I was there, granted, this was the early 80s, had a, a city hall bureau of six to seven people. I think there's maybe one full time. So you're not you're not covering City Hall anymore. You know, you're you're picking and choosing and hunting and, and pecking. And the type of investigative reporting was done at the Miami Herald routinely. That was done at the Philadelphia Inquirer. That was done all over the country. You didn't have to be the New York Times. I think that's primarily gone. They just sort of, we have to go online. We have to go online. We have to go online. But very few papers have figured out how to monetize.
2: What do you regard as your greatest work?
1: Well, you know what? I'm going to be honest. And maybe this sounds self-serving. I, I think this last book, The Mosquito Bowl, is my greatest work. Will it be my most popular? You know, I doubt it. That's Friday Night Lights about high school football in Texas. This book took me five years. And, you know, for me, the test is, did you write the book that you set out to write? And I did. It's got a lot of moving parts. It's, it's complex. It's not superficial, but I think it really tells Uh, Not just a riveting tale, but a really, really important one to give memory to very young men who died for the cause of the nation uh, in the Pacific War.
2: The Mosquito Bowl, a game of life and death in World War Two. Why did you choose that as subject matter? These are giant investments. And when you've written Friday Night Lights, you have to be very careful about what you're going to choose to pour months and years into why this is the choice.
1: Well, you know, some have said, Buzz, you should have quit while you were ahead. (laughs) Just that's it. I'm done. You know, I'll see you in heaven or hell. Look, I'm always looking for a great story. Great stories, they're hard to find. You're looking for narrative. You're looking for substance. You're looking for character. This hit me out of the blue after sort of five years of not having an idea. I was online and I read a little bit about this thing called the Mosquito Bowl. It was this improbable football game played between two regiments of the Marine Corps on Guadalcanal on Christmas Eve of 1944. They were stocked with great college football players. Some had played in the pros, three bona fide All-Americans, seven captains from coast to coast, including Brown and Notre Dame. But the real upshot, what got to me emotionally, was of the 65 who played in this joyous game, 1,500 Marines came drunk, gambled. Of the 65 who played, 15 were later killed several months later at Okinawa. and to me that was a really, really riveting, perhaps wrenching, dramatic story.
2: You just said by way of passing something that filled me with dark chill five years without an idea.
1: They're really, you know, they're just for me, they're hard to come up with. There's a lot of a gap between um, the books that I do. What often happens, and you probably can do this, you get an idea, you're really excited, you love it, you love it. And then a week later, you say, No, it's, it's just not going to hold the story. The, the narrative's not there. The storytelling's not there. The character's not there. And then once in a blue moon, basically, I, I can actually feel it inside me. I can feel my heart begin to palpitate. I get nervous. I get excited. This story uh, struck despite a huge obstacle, which is all the men I were writing about. We're dead. Of the 65 who played, 64 were dead. And I said to myself, how the the hell am I going to do this? Can I get anything? And then, you know, it's like reporting. You work, you get lucky. And I found that some of the men I write about, I write about four, had left a really, really good paper trail. Their parents had kept everything. So I said, all right, um, there's a way to portray these men from really the beginning of their lives, through college, to the Marines, and then to the utter horror of, of Okinawa. And then what put me over the top was my father was there. My father was a Marine rifleman at Okinawa, which I didn't know until I did the book proposal. I knew he was in Okinawa. I didn't know where he was. I don't know what his rank was. And I went on the muster rolls I said, what the hell? Let's, let's see. There he was. We have the same name. My father in one of the regiments, the 4th Regiment that I'm writing about. It. And that really freaked me out.
2: Just like that? You just discovered it?
1: Yeah. I mean, because he never talked about it. So I always figured this is this is hands off. I mean, he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to be reminded of. He would joke about it a little bit and make light of it. Uh and I remember asking him once, I said, "Dad, did you um have a rifle?" Yes. "Did you shoot?" Yes. "Did you kill anyone?" He said, "I wasn't going to look. What are you crazy? I wasn't going to say I don't know. I don't care. I know I fired it and if it hit someone, uh that was great." But he was a pacifist. Uh he hated guns, but You know, at that point in time, everyone served. It was the beauty of everyone, of any socioeconomic grouping coming together uh, in unison to defend and fight for the country, you know, including my dad. He was at Dartmouth and then got drafted out of Dartmouth after his freshman year. I mean, he was 19 years old. I I can't imagine. A lot of the guys I read about it are early 20s or younger. How do they get off that transport to, to go to shore? What was within them? I kept saying, can I do that? I hope I could, but probably the answer answer uh, is no. But they didn't see themselves as brave in the mosquito ball. It was duty. It was as simple as that. This is my duty, and I will see it to the end. I hope I live, but I may die.
2: Which process do you enjoy more, reporting or writing?
1: Oh, jeez. Writing is great when it's rolling and, and when you have confidence. It takes a while uh, to gain that confidence. There are a lot of false steps. You're really tentative at the beginning. You know, I try to write, I try to write at least a thousand words a day. Sometimes I'll write more. Sometimes I write less. I put something on the page. And then there are those horrifying moments where you, you feel I'm stuck. I, I don't know where to go. There's no rhythm in the writing. Just the sentences are, are clunky. And, you, you know, you, you get over it. The research on this was a blast. This was all historical research and I loved it. I never, ever tired of it because it's the ultimate reason to be a journalist. For me, it's the hunt and peck. You have this massive material and then for weeks you're looking around, looking around, can I use anything? Can I use anything? And then there's a little strand over here and a little strand over there. And then it begins to pull together. I, I loved uh, I love doing the research. And at the end, uh, I think the book did gather together a lot of moving parts. Uh, it was a huge puzzle, and, and where to put the pieces was a tremendous challenge.
2: You've lamented with us before doing the LeBron James book. Is it because <laughs> the reporting couldn't be thorough? Is it because you knew you had to write around a bunch of stuff, and you don't like you like giving the most authentic version of things?
1: Yeah, and you know what? I don't blame LeBron. You know, LeBron is such a physical specimen. You know, you, you think he's thirty-five. I mean, he was, I think, twenty-one or twenty. Um, at the time he was still with Cleveland. He actually wasn't that well, liked. Uh, a lot of people considered him kind of a punk and he, he just didn't, he wasn't into it. He just wasn't into it. Um, I basically got two to three hours. He didn't really care. And the worst thing was, Dan, uh, we go to the gas station to get gas. He doesn't have his wallet. Maverick Carter doesn't have his wallet. I got to pay for the gas, you know, here I am, this little schlub reporter, and I'm paying for the gas, but he wasn't into it. And I, I just never felt like I got to the root of it. I never got uh to the to the root of him.
2: You say that you try to write a thousand words a day doesn't mean you always write a thousand words a day, but what's the last day that you didn't even try?
1: When I was doing the book, I mean, you know, except well, I would say every day I'm hoping for a thousand words, but you know what? If it's a sentence, I'll take it. If it's two, if it's three paragraphs, because then you have something on the page. And so you wake up the next morning, at least you have something to manipulate, to play with, to massage. And you know this, there is nothing more terrifying when you wake up blank. There's nothing there. And I realize you got to put something on the page and towards the end, of course, you got a deadline. Look, if we didn't have deadlines, nothing ever would be written. Let's face it, nothing. And, you know, tour began to flow. It began to get a rhythm. It was exciting. I like writing about people, you know, much more than process. But there is process in this book because I wanted to get across just what the Marines faced um, in the Pacific with uh, amphibious assault. And so I do segue. I, I write about uh, the draft. And contrary to what we believe, uh, we had a force of 12 million, but uh, we drafted 20 million. That means 8 million got out of it. Uh, I write about racism because it's in the context of the guys uh, that I'm writing about. When I got to writing about people and had their letters and other documents, man, it was great. Uh, I say this not to be dismissive or silly. It's orgasmic. It really is orgasmic uh, when it goes. I've never had a feeling of, man, this thing is rocking and blowing. I see it. I see it. I see where I'm going. And it's, it's, it's why I write. It's a, it's a
2: beautiful feeling. You articulated the confidence of writing well. What represents the most confident you've felt writing and the least?
1: I, I have to say there were moments in the, in the Mosquito Bowl when Friday Night Lights got going and there was a huge misstep. I wrote 30,000 words. I was still in Te- Odessa where the book takes place. I needed distance from it. I didn't have it. I wrote 30,000 words. Basically portraying the town of Odessa. I sent it off to my editor. Normally, you're the editors. You only have a few martinis. They take a couple of weeks to get back to you. It may take a month. She called me the next day. I said, all right. And she basically said, when are you coming to New York? I said, I, I don't know, a month. She said, how about tomorrow? I flew tomorrow. She took the 30,000 words. And she said, look, I don't want to offend you. But at the rate this book is going, it's going to be longer than the rise and fall in the third right. And Odessa is not Nazi Germany. And literally, Dan, we sat down in her small office. We used index cards and she sort of grilled me. It was almost spontaneous. What, what characters are we writing about? What games are we writing about? Why are we writing about the games? What's the social significance? How do they advance the narrative? And I saw it then on a corkboard. I saw the pieces rip through it, rip through it. Once, once I got a good outline down and I could see it with those index cards, it was a blast. It really was a blast. It was my first book. I was thirty-three years old, and you're not going to have a feeling like that, like that again, because the success was ridiculous. I, I still think I just got an email today from someone in France who wants a copy of the book. I mean, it is the book that won't die. So I'm hoping the mosquito bowl, you know, maybe takes the edge off that. I don't know.
2: The grand majority of people never even get one like that, but to have that be <laughs> your first, I wonder what happens with the uh, the emptiness of the. Of the afterward,
1: it's it's gotten better. There were times in my life where it was very, very hard because I think we all want to move forward in life. We all want to, those of us who are ambitious and many are, we want to top what we've done. I mean, that's part of life. Look, I I know the book has sold close to two million copies. It it took off. I don't brag. It's iconic. Friday Night Lights is part of the vernacular. I knew I'm not going to top that. And there were moments where I was really, really despondent uh, and depressed. My second book was about Ed Rendell when he was the mayor of Philadelphia, trying to save the city. I I knew two months going in, this book is not going to have anywhere near the success of Friday Night Lights. I don't know if it's going to have any success. I could not write for three months, which is when I went to a psychiatrist and I could put on antidepressants and anti-anxiety because I was really blocked up and it helped. And then my father said, look, I think that's it, Buzz. I think you're feeling sorry for yourself. I think that's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have that you've written a book that for whatever reason took the nation by storm. So just move forward and and, and stop comparing it and be proud of it. Don't be dismissive of it, Be, be proud of it. And so finally, at the very ripe age of 67, I'm proud of it.
2: Well, when did that happen, though? When did you arrive at something closer to peace with all of that?
1: I would, I would think, I'm, I'm trying to think maybe 10 years ago, maybe, maybe 15, 10, or, or, or maybe less. Um, I wrote another book that did well about the art of managing with Tony Russo, and that did well, and that was a bestseller, so at least that made me feel um, better. But, you know, my life has had a lot, a lot of ups and a lot of downs, I've gone through phases of life. You know, I had, a, I had a weird time in there. Um, I don't know if you've seen the documentary. I kind of hope it uh,
2: No, I have. And I want to talk to you about that. You've really sure. you've gone out of your way to show your life to people with. Well, uh, I
1: have. And I felt at the time that was important. I think it maybe was uh, too intimate. But I wanted to show people, you know, that we all have appetites. A lot of this was about my sexual proclivities, good or bad. But we have appetites and we have things in our lives. Some you're ashamed of, but some you should not. Be ashamed of, but I was I was reeling at that point in my life. I, Vanity Fair, they had had uh, the purge. Everyone I knew was gone, including Gregory Carter. I did not. This book idea was percolating, but it wasn't formed. I said, What am I going to do with my life? You know, I'm on my own. I, I have nothing, and in a sense, I feel there was a certain self destructiveness in being so intimate. why I kind of admire it. And then I said, you got to go back to your roots. You got to go back to what you're good at. You know, you've gone over here, you've written for television, you've written memoirs, you've written this, you did a book with LeBron, a book with Caitlyn Jenner, none of which were really satisfying at all. And I said, this idea came to me and I think it, I don't want to be dramatic, but it It righted my life and brought me back to what I love and what I'm really good at.
2: When you say you were blocked up for months, what was it? Pressure? The pressure of having to meet what it is that you did that was unprecedented at 33?
1: Part of it, there was a lot of sort of soul searching. God, I, I, I wish, I, I, at one point I said, I wish I had written this book when I was in my 40s. I wish I had written other books and this sort of came in, came in the natural progression. I'm, I'm 33 years old. This thing is going to sell 2 million copies. This this license is, is going to be... A movie. It's gonna be a television show. And as I'm doing a prayer for the city, some of that I didn't know. And I said, This thing's not gonna fly. It's it's not gonna fly. What's the constituency for a book about a mayor of a big city? What five other big city mayors? And I couldn't go forward. I just I was blocked. I kept saying, It's not gonna fly, it's not gonna have anywhere near this test. Are you gonna be? And I actually said this to myself. Are you gonna be the literary equivalent of, of, of the great high school quarterback that goes to state and then never plays again? Is that what you're gonna be? Oh my and god. So really you went you're, through a lot,
2: my mind a lot. Were you dealing with fraud stuff? Were you dealing with I'm an imposter? You have this successful sure. book that's a monster, and you're like, Are people gonna realize that I can't do this every time?
1: I, I didn't it's a good question. I didn't feel like a fraud, but I there was a part of me that said, look, I can't do this every time. So I would see reviews. I even sold one today, actually, you know, not as the mosquito ball is a nice book, but it's not as entertaining as Friday Night Lights. Well, you know what? I'm sorry that war, World War (laughs) Two and people dying and getting shot and killed is not as entertaining as Friday Night Lights. And I will take that under advisement. But it, it, it made me live it. Why compare it? They're apples and oranges. And, you know, then I go through, oh, God, 33 years old. I'm now 67, 40 years have passed. I want this book to do well, but you know I got to be zen about it. It's not—it's not, it's not going to have the same success. It just isn't. But I'm really proud of the book.
2: Buzz, I want to shake your shoulders and tell you at this age to stop getting livid because someone has written a sentence of criticism about <laughs> your book. You you're, can't the, help it. you're the same way. What are you talking about? No, I can't read that stuff anymore. I'm not going to be made angry by some person who doesn't understand how hard it is to write a book and how much you've pour, you poured into it. Like, I'm not going to be made angry. You, I've well. th- I've thought since I've known you that you have an anger problem. And so I want you to not be as angry about it. <laughs>
1: It doesn't matter. I'm much better. I promise. I'm much better. But it did it. It, it, You're right. I shouldn't read it, but it made me women. I I spent five years on this thing. This review. If it took fifteen minutes, that's probably too much time. Fifteen minutes. It was terrible. It was in the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. I forget the guy's name. Still hurts though. Still
2: hurts. If you read that stuff, it'll hurt. Like, why are you taking time? Why are you taking fifteen minutes to be cruel to me when I poured five years into this and you have no idea how much I care about this project? You know, you have no idea this bit of art, what it took to be meticulous, obsessive, crazy to sculpt this, so that you could write, so you could burp out fifteen minutes of diarrhea about it's not quite Friday Night Lights.
1: Hey, will you do me a favor? Will you call this guy right now? That was an excellent risk. All right. Let's call, call this him. guy and tell him because you're right. All right. Let's... Five years of my life, five years doing nothing and to dismiss it. Well, some reviews are not going to be great. Some are going to be great. Some people spend time. They read the book. This guy did. It was just superficial crap and I shouldn't have read it, but it's so tempting. It's so hard to stay away from it. Because the internet, you know it's out there. What are people saying? What are people not saying? But believe it or not, I let it go. When I wrote a prayer for the city in the 90s, people would mention Friday nights. I would get on the phone, and call them, and rip them a new one, and I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to complain about the guy on on national radio on a podcast.
2: Don't just do that, Whittingham, In order to give the listener a possible payoff here in the next twenty minutes, I would like for you guys to find on the internet who this writer was who ripped Buzz Bisinger's <laughs> uh, book here unacceptably, uh, the Mosquito Bowl. And uh, let's see by the end if we can have him on by in the next twenty minutes. Find the Pittsburgh Post Gazette writer who wrote this. Oh, good. Hunt them down and and have them talk to Buzz. When you turned in Friday Night Lights at 30,000 words, it's a first draft and you're called in. Was that a painful session or were you worried about it? Or if the yeah. book had come out in that form, would it have been any kind of special if it had come out in its original no. form?
1: No, it, w- it would. It would not. Have. It would have been anything close because it was ponderous. It was really slow. You know, as she said, this isn't Nazi Germany. It was taking forever. I wasn't up, I wasn't writing about any of the characters. I wasn't writing about any of the games. I really wasn't setting the atmosphere of this town obsessed, uh, you know, with high school football. So, so yes, I was scared, but she wasn't. She said, "Look, this happens. It's the first book. You're going to make mistakes." Uh, what I worried was she was going to say, "He can't do this. We're just going to cancel it. He can't do it." But when I saw Those index cards aligned and on that corkboard. Then I said, all right, I see it. I got to face the book. Sometimes, you know, you write and you don't really face it. You don't really get into it. You dart around because you're scared of saying, what do I really have? What do I really have? But I got over that hurdle. And then right away, this was in September, because it only took me about three months to write once I got into it. I said, all right, I see it. And then day after day, there was more and more confidence.
2: What were the impulses that you were feeding that cause you regret now when you think about doing the documentary?
1: I, you know, I, I hurt people, and you know, I hurt my hurt my uh, I hurt my beautiful wife Lisa, who was amazing. Um, that made me very sad. It made me very sorrowful. I just wondered if I had you know gone too far. There was a it was only a second, but there was a pretty explicit scene of, of S and M. You know, I was a was in a body bag, and I was very uncomfortable with that. And then I realized I want to go private a little bit. I I don't want to be known for the documentary. I want to go private. I want something that's my own little piece that I can do and then let it launch into the world. And this became, you know, the the mosquito bowl set in World War II and ultimately set in, in the horror of Okinawa that I think very few people are aware of.
2: We don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I'm not interested in making you further uncomfortable. Well, I'm just asking you about the impulses you were feeling. When you look back at the decisions that you made, I'm asking you why you think you decided to be that vulnerable with a public that can't be trusted with your vulnerabilities. (laughs) That's an excellent way of putting it.
1: I felt at the time that one of the things, we're not very honest. We're not very honest about ourselves. We're not honest about other people. We don't really express things that many think are taboo, but are not. So one of the impulses was, I want to say these things. Now, granted, to, to sway my marriage like that, I thought was terrible, but these are, I don't know, I to put it, sexual impulses inside me. They're, they're not bad, and they're a part of me, and they're very, very hard to shed when you've had them all your life. So this is an exploration that I have to take, even if it ends up to be a disaster. And that was my, you know, original impulse. But you know what it's like. You do it and then you see it. And then you say, whoa, I I don't know if I should have said this stuff. But you know what? It's out. I did. It's over. I will say that a lot of people got a lot out of it. I mean, I got a lot of letters saying, you know, thank you. Thank you for expressing this. Thank you for telling it. Thank you for your candor and honesty. It's it's helping. So that that was great. But ultimately, it was just 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 too private. And to hurt Lisa like that, I will not ever uh, forgive myself. And the great news is. We're together, we stay together, and our marriage is stronger than ever. So that's, it had a great, had a great result.
2: But won't ever forgive yourself, huh? That, that, the remorse is that strong, just didn't know what the, the damage was that you were doing by, by, I imagined wanting to be less alone with this and wanting to make people who are alone with this feel like it's not quite as abnormal as they might think.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to, I wanted to get that across, but, you know, when the documentary veered into them, I was, I, I, I heard a beautiful, smart, singular, spectacular woman. And I'm not, I can't forgive myself for that. I think she has, I I hope she has, she has forgiven me, but I won't, I won't. And so when I saw that on the screen, when I saw the damage that was done, that, that, you know, spiritually killed
2: me. You don't strike me as someone though on even the best moments that is doing a whole lot of going easy on himself
1: oh god no. no it's it's sort of pathetic really. i can't i can't my wife says give it a break give it a break stop beating yourself up i mean i've been in therapy for over 20 years and that's that's a really strong litany and i don't want to get into the psychology but being hard on myself beating myself up is my default position i'm comfortable with it as, as strange as that sounds i'm, I'm not comfortable but being optimistic, I'm not comfortable with sort of sliding through because part of it, Dan, is you got to be hard on yourself if you want to succeed, if you want to do something special. You, you, you can't uh, coast. You got to pound away. But for me, it's become extreme. And in doing the Mosquito Bowl, now it's launched. It's, it's launched today. I'm proud of it. I think it's got a great narrative. I think it's important. I think it's poignant. I think it's tragic as I take these men through, some of whom live and some of whom die. But I've been beat, you know, it's not going to, I'll tell you what I say. not going to do well, not going to do well, not going to do well. Get used to it. Get used to it. It's no Friday night lights. Get used to it. Get used to it. And you screwed this up. You screwed that up. Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? And this, this is the running chorus through my head.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: Is there anything that you would like to do over about Friday Night Lights? What things, as you're meticulous about uh, perfecting things, is there anything that you'd go back and change? Or are you like, no, nope, no, that came out uh, pretty much a masterpiece uh, when it was done?
1: Uh, and then I... The thing I would change is looking back, and I've never read it over, I've read parts of it, but the thing I would change is I thought it had a great youthful exuberance, and I think that was one of the reasons for success. But some of the prose was a little bit purpley. I think some of the prose was over the top. So maybe I would have screened some of that out. But no, I mean, you know, once I got going, this this was the book I set out to do in the sense that. I'm proud of what I did. I had no idea what would happen during that season. I think I was the luckiest person alive because of all the ins and outs of the season. The racism to the great running back, Booby Miles, almost not making the playoffs, the surreality of the coin toss to see who got in, almost advancing, going all the way. The Dallas Carter team that was all black that got kicked out of the playoffs and seven of their kids went to prison after they won the state championship. Everything broke Right. And, you know, you, you get that
2: once in a while. I enjoy talking to authors for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because they invest so much in the meticulousness of some subject matter to pour in for years of investment to gather an expertise over what it is that they're chronicling. So I ask you these questions about some of your seminal work, asking you to define for me what you learned. OK, a one or two item learning? Cause I know a lot of things get learned, but call me Caitlin. When you do that book, what did you learn?
1: Call me Caitlin?
2: Yes. Nothing.
1: <laughs> Very little that I, that I did not know. Cause I had done the Vanity Fair piece, uh, on Caitlin. I gotten to know her well. Um, Caitlin poured her heart into the book, but it was missing something. It was missing something. Odd. Personally, I think it was missing introspection on the part of caitlin and that was not something um i could i could make up and i'm probably too honest i i knew when the book was sold her star was fading there was so much controversy about her much of which i don't think was fair particularly in the transgender community it wasn't for caitlin i'm not sure we would know what the word transgender is Um, but i didn't learn much the reader may have learned a little bit of this and a little bit of that but you know what and it's her book it's her book, and that was that's humiliating. As as and some have done it brilliantly. I'm I'm sure you read the book on Andre Agassi uh, that was ghostwritten by Jr. Moore. Be- it's it the best. Bi-
2: it's the best biography I've ever read. Not just sports it's, ever. It's brilliant. It's it's brilliant.
1: Uh, Andre had a life that was fascinating, and he 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 went deep with it. And Jr. I don't know if you read the Tender Bar. I mean, the Tender Bar is a fabulous yes, book. Yes, excellent uh, as well. So it can be done, but I, I kind of like he. She was much more cooperative at LeBron. She really worked, but it was missing something. It, w- it was missing something that I, that I that I couldn't get. We've talked about uh, shooting stars, you know, LeBron. When your main character's not into it, and you can tell he's distracted, and you can tell he really doesn't want to do it. Now, I could rely on on other uh, characters because of the nature of the story. It was these five kids coming together in high school. But I didn't get at it. I I, I always felt, you're not getting at it. I got to tell you, you're... Buzz your head's not really there your your head is not really there, and so I didn't really do the kind of reporting that I honestly that I, that I thought I should do. you know Friday Night lights, I learned a real slice of Americana, a real slice of American life. I had no idea the type of pressure that was being put uh, on these kids. It was much worse than I thought. I had no idea about the kind of race and racism that there was in Odessa that sadly exists uh, from coast to coast. You know, Prayer for the City was about a hero. I I had a great appreciation for politics because of the work of Ed Rendell. The Mosquito Bowl was about commitment, incredible sacrifice, what duty really means and the willingness of these Marines and not just Marine, any seaman, any soldier to be willing to sacrifice their lives. And what I learned is just how young some of these guys were who died up to 65 who played in a game 15 died and they were young they were kids they might have been in their 20s but you know I, I i kept a picture of one of them a character named dave schreiner next to me as i wrote and i would look into him and i wouldn't get weepy but there would be tears in my eyes because he was a beautiful man he was a two-time all-american from wisconsin he loved his family, his family loved him, he was in love with his fiance. And I won't tell you what happened, you can pretty much guess. But to look into his eyes at such a waste. I know it wasn't. But part of me says, what if it hadn't happened? Because it was what if it hadn't happened? What if he had not jeopardized himself on Okinawa? What if these 15 guys had gone that way instead of this way? Would they still, you know, would they still be alive? But this happened constantly in World War II, And I don't, there wasn't a single man who said, the hell with it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Rhodesia. I I ain't gonna fight in this. They did knowing, particularly in Okinawa, that the odds of getting wounded or or killed were way more than 50%. Well, 82 days in Okinawa, 240,000 people died, close to 150,000 civilians, virtually the entirety of the Japanese uh, army, 90 to 100,000. And, you know, 14,000 Americans died. The Navy, because of kamikaze pilots, lost more people than in any battle, 5,000. The Marines, 4,000. Casualty rate uh, over 50%. And this became one of the, I think, a primary reason why Truman decided to drop the atom bomb. He was shocked by the casualty rate. And then you're attacking the Japanese homeland where, you know, they're going to be more fanatic than they've already been. And he said, That's it. I'm not going to lose another boy on foreign soil. I'm, I'm not gonna do it. Okinawa was held, the Japanese had a great strategy. Their only strategy was to kill as many Americans as possible. And I'm not gonna let this happen. I am simply and not. We, we have to end this war for the sake of these young, vibrant men who died. And look, they weren't perfect. No one's perfect. America wasn't perfect. We still have uh, shameful things that we have never let go of, our attitude about immigration. Uh, race uh, in America. But ultimately, and I think this is true of World War II and true of the best of us, they were ordinary men rising to extraordinary circumstances. And I think in many ways, that's the best thing you can ever say about someone really reaching beyond yourself uh, to, to sacrifice, to protect, to save the fellow man in your foxhole. And by the way, they're not fighting for patriotism. They're not fighting for the flag, except in some sort of abstract way. I think many of them. I don't. I think many of them didn't know where Japan was. They certainly didn't know about this islands as they're going towards the Japanese homeland. They fight for each other. You fight for the man next to you. You fight for the man you've lived with in the tent, and that was so stirring. And When I say fight, that means a willingness to die. And you're in a foxhole. Um, the Japanese have great snipers, and you turn, you hear a. <laughs> Bullets don't make a lot of noise when they go through the skull. You hear a whist, and the guy next to you has been hit. You see the hole through the helmet. I don't have to tell you the rest. they want to regret it. But he's dead. But you don't stop. You, you can't stop. You don't cry. You'll cry later, but you have to move on. You have to move on, even though it's somebody you love. Because, you know, there are only two spheres of life, I think, where men are really allowed to openly love. One is sports. Did you see them? They love each other. And one is war, which I think is interesting. Those are the two arenas. And those Marines, any soldier who fights, you love one another. This is your family. And to see your family obliterated on a battlefield, I I can't imagine anything worse.
2: The new book is The Mosquito Bowl, a game of life and death in World War II. What else did you discover about your father? And did this bring you closer to him?
1: You know, when I discovered it once again, this was sort of accidental that he not not just had been an Okinawa, which I knew, but had been a rifleman, which meant he was on the front lines. because that's what riflemen did. They were in combat. I was struck by that. This was never intended to be, you know, a search for my dad. And it's not I do do write about him at the beginning. Dan, I, I was so proud of it. The more I learned about what these men went through the carnage, the horror, the blood, the sadness, the tragedy, but also the uplift. There was a lot that was uplifting. I was so proud of his sacrifice. By the way, I don't know why my dad became a Marine because he was drafted by the Navy. And you know, a lot of the Navy jobs were fairly cushy. And, but typical of my dad, he said, well, I don't want to die on a ship. So you join the Marines? I mean, what's wrong with that picture? And I wish a I typical
2: Bissinger, a whole lot of conflicts roiling <laughs> within. He passed that down to his son
1: <laughs> that he definitely did. Right. Well, I don't want to die in a ship, so I'll go join the Marines.
2: Good move, dad.
1: Really good move.
2: Uh, the Bissingers, the Bissingers might be able to be accused of some self-destructive behavior.
1: <laughs> I, I, I think that's right. We should be in a wrestling match together, my father and I, to see who could be the most negative. Um, but he went through hell and, and he came back and I just wish at a certain point when he was older and I was older, I would have probed, I would have, I would have asked more, but I could tell he didn't want to go there. My mother awaited an incident. There was a small, uh, get together, of family and somehow the war came up and he had to leave. He had to leave the apartment, go downstairs and smoke a cigarette. So I said, that's his private zone and I don't want to violate it, but my pride in my dad has multiplied exponentially and that's that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing in anything you write to sort of rediscover someone you thought you knew, but in some ways did not.
2: I've got a couple of more questions here. I know you're pressed for time. So I wanted to ask you about the piece you did in 1998, Shattered Glass, an expose on the career of New Republic writer Stephen Glass, who is making a bunch of shit up. Anything to be learned from in that expose that was worth carrying around 30 years later?
1: Well, you know, there's there's there's. No substitute for crass ambition, and I knew this kid a little bit, and nothing was going to stop this kid. But, you know, it's amazing how human beings can manipulate the system and almost, almost get away with it. He snookered everybody. Now, he was writing for the New Republic, and I I forget now, I think almost 20 of his stories were made up or parts were fictionalized, but New York Times Magazine wanted them, NPR, George Magazine, Rolling Stone, and... His genius, and by the way, there are very few people in the world I really do hate, but I do hate him. His genius was to know exactly what editors wanted. Because you know how it goes. I want a gotcha story. I want something that's revelatory. I want something that gets on page six. And he knew to a T how to do it until he finally went too far. And there was a reporter at Forbes online who finally said something's um, not right here. But he snookered for two, two years two years. He was the hottest young journalist in the country. And, you know, I guess I should have learned from it, just start piping stuff. And, and you know, maybe I'd have your job.
2: What was the reaction or the feedback that you remember or blowback to the GQ column that you wrote where you admitted to being a shopaholic and <laughs> that expensive designer clothes that you spent like 600 grand or something in a couple of years on great looking clothes?
1: I don't, I don't know why I laughed. Unfortunately, that phase of my life is pretty much, uh, uh, pretty much over I wrote the story because I thought it was a story with telling. I mean, once again, the kind of impetus was, hey, I have an addiction. This is how addiction works. I have a leather fetish, but a leather fetish is not a bad thing. Spending ridiculous amounts of money can be a bad thing. And I could sort of afford it, but frankly could not. And it's really hurting me now. So I wanted to sort of uh, help others or, or in exposing myself, you know, let others see what sheer honesty is like, but I think there was something self-destructive about it, which I do. I didn't tell my kids. My son Caleb was a Kenyan and and found out when someone said, God, what's with your dad? And he said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, that story in GQ, I mean, my God, everyone's talking about it. It sounded like he's gone insane. And there was stuff in it that was sexually explicit. I really hurt him. It took a while to recover. I didn't tell uh, my other son, and literally the, the day that it came out, I, I was in rehab for what I would describe as an all-purpose breakdown. My my wife was just not going in a good direction, and part of it was I wrote a book called Father's Day about the relationship with my twin son, who had traced brain damage. Once again, I liked the book, but it it, it didn't really uh, hit the marketplace like I hoped, and I was really depressed, and when you get depressed, I don't know how you handle it, but I act out, I I get self-destructive. I don't like myself. And we have, you know, it's not perfect. There's something gimmicky about it, but uh, it actually did help my mood. I, I stopped being so blisteringly angry about everything. So I really have not seen what the reaction to it is. Although I've been told by people there was a lot
2: the rehab is for just all purpose being addicted to beating yourself up. Like what be, which, which is the addiction to, or being addicted to being addicted to things like what, or just, well, your- there was an addiction, you know,
1: there was a certainly an, an, an aberrant addiction to leather and look, leather for me signifies a certain uh, sexuality. I, I was doing harm to myself. You know, I was doing harm. I was, I was burning myself. I was playing around with things that, you know, it could be really dangerous, you know, a, a hood, and if I could unzip it, um, you know, I would have choked myself to death. I was acting out. I I just hate to say it, but, you know, I was screwing around. My wife was in Abu Dhabi at NYU. There was a, a 14,000 mile gap between us, or 14 hours, and you name it, um, I was doing it. I just felt... Going to a therapist once a week was not, was not working. Something was really deeply, deeply troubled within me, and I had to try to sort it out. So, I mean, you know, it was a lack of uh, impulse control, sexual addiction, self-harm, acting out. And, you know, for me, that was enough to get some really, um, permanent not permanent, but uh, some consistent long-term help. So I was there for 60 days.
2: You're introspective and you are somebody who is really astute. Can you explain to me why it is that you have these roots that need to be so transparently honest about everything? Why do you have to show everyone everything?
1: You know, I don't, I don't, it's a great question. Certainly no one in my family has it. I'm surprised they still talk to me actually, (laughs) but it's, it's been, I think it's a part of me because some people are so dishonest. People are afraid of things. People are afraid of expect expressing things. You know, everything is, is taboo. You know, I, I still like the wear leather. I think they look cool in it. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But you know, I would get compliments from women and minorities um, who love the way I looked and, and white men would look at me like I was insane. And you know, I said, guys to myself, I'm, I'm just expressing myself. You're scared to express yourself, and we need to express ourselves. We need to get to honesty. If you get to honesty, then there's something to we'll talk about. But so much of life now is, you know, is spin. Put a positive spin on it. What's the story you're going to tell? It's all about being, to me, uh, disingenuous and dishonest, and I just don't want to be that way.
2: I don't know that there's anything, I, I don't pretend to know you, but I, I'm guessing there's not a lot that makes you angrier than dishonesty, given that you're such a zealot about making sure that you're being honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I, you know, when I see it, obviously we see it in politicians all the time, so that doesn't really count. But, you know, I'll listen to people, I'll hear things, either they embellish or they, they, they embellish and they tell a story about themselves or something that they've done which really isn't true or it's just outright uh, you know, lies about things. And look, I've lied. I know I've lied and I'm not and I'm not proud of it. But it's more this sense that we're not honest about ourselves and we're really not honest with each other. And what would the world be like if, if we were and took the cover off things? Look, liking weather is spending $600,000 is somewhat extreme. But liking weather is, is not a bad thing. Exploring sexually is probably... A healthy thing as long as you don't hurt people and I did. those are good things and those are things to talk about because if you talk about them then maybe people will say you know what i as caitlin jenner said we all have stuff we all have stuff in our closets and i saw this in her her ability her honesty to say this is who i am that was very uplifting and you know i learned from that and i learned from you know what i need to be honest about myself to be authentic I love authenticity. And that was something about the Mosquito Bowl. These guys were, were innocent, they were sweet, and they were totally, totally authentic. And it's one of the reasons you know, I fell in love with them. I fell in love with the kids in Friday Night Lights who played football. Totally authentic. Odessa, a totally authentic place. And to me, those are the those are the books and those are the memories that, that resonate and, and stay with
2: you. Appreciate your time, appreciate your work, appreciate your honesty. Last question on the way out. Was it a dryer that was going on throughout this interview or just you leaning back and forth in a chair that makes some noises? I don't know. Uh, Whittingham, my producer here, has been made crazy the entire time. And the audience who's been with us for 50 minutes has probably been looking around their house. What's making that noise in my house? Uh, is it a dryer? or is it the chair (laughs) it's the chair (laughs) okay uh sorry no that's okay i just need to point it out to the audience because we're talking about we're covering rich and deep and dark terrain and there was a distracting noise that sounded like some socks were making their way around in a circle behind you thank you buzz for being on with us we appreciate it
1: all right dan thank you thank you guys
0: Trademarks owned by Beckley, SAB the CV, copyright 2024, próximo. Jersey City, New Jersey, please drink responsibly.